walking through, journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is actually a letter from Paul to an ancient church in Corinth. And the more I study the cultural background of Corinth and of this letter, the more amazed I am at the similarities between ancient Corinth and modern Columbus. Yeah, there are massive differences. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, we don't live in the Roman Empire, for instance, or uh, we don't live uh, in, uh, in an honor-shame culture. We don't sort of live with the Greco-Roman gods as realities in our life. We don't live in a client-patron culture either. All, all things that will bear heavily on our reading of 1 Corinthians. And so get excited if you're like, what on earth does any of that mean? Well, it bears heavy on what Paul has to say to this unique church situation. But there are many, many, many overlaps. Columbus, like Corinth, was an impressive city for impressive people. An ambitious city for ambitious people. Corinth, like our own city, was a beautiful city, always under construction. Amen? I mean, there were pylons, ancient pylons, whatever those were, all the time because they were constantly building, constantly seeking to become more beautiful, more accessible, more impressive. And because it was a seafaring equivalent to an international airport hub, it was incredibly diverse. Religiously diverse, ethnically diverse, economically diverse, just like our own city. And so what we are doing in this series is we are asking God to speak as powerfully to our church as he did to this church in Corinth with this letter. And when you picture the church of Corinth, I don't know what you have in your mind, but the church in Corinth met in a house and there was probably no more than 60 members of this church. Remember, this is the Roman Empire, and to be a Christ follower was dangerous, highly dangerous. And so they met in these private settings, and oftentimes the followers were not large in number in those days. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask God again to speak to us as he did to them. Last week, we finished the first chapter, and so will you read along with me starting in chapter 2 this morning? This is God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And as my and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord, would the words of my mouth, would the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, you who breathed out this word, would you be present among us so that we would encounter not ideas about you merely, 
but that we would encounter the person of Jesus. The power that Paul talks about in this letter. The power of God. Would our faith rest not in any persuasive speech that I may have this morning? Would our faith not rest on anything that we like about this church in our function? Would our faith rest in the power of God? And would this time where we sit under your word be evidence of that? And it's in his name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So our house, if you've never been, is a short walk away from L.A. Fitness. Los Angeles Fitness. uh, Which is both a blessing and a curse for me. It's a blessing because it makes exercise for me as convenient as is humanly possible. Okay? More convenient, I would argue, than having a gym in my own house because I don't have to deal with that. But it is a curse to me because if you've stopped exercising, then I have a giant concrete reminder of my ineptitude. It's like a building of shame. And they even like put big glass paneling windows on the side so as you drive by and you see people with greater self-will than you sort of exercising. It's this great thing that they do. What I find fascinating about this place is that once a year the building is packed. The entire month of January is packed with people. It's super crowded. And right about now... It starts to thin out. Right about now, what are we in? The 10th of February? It just starts to thin out. It's really, really obvious. It's way more spacious. It's amazing. Studies have been done on this kind of phenomenon. Uh, Apparently, 80% of all New Year's resolutions sputter out in February. This is like, February is like the graveyard of your best intentions. <laughs> okay, that's what happens. Whatever it is, I mean, it doesn't have to be fitness. We all want to change. And that's why we make resolutions. That's why we all made resolutions 41 days ago. Because it's an opportunity to change. I mean, who among us is truly satisfied with where you are right now? None of us. We all have this sort of ideal self that we project into the future that we want to change into, do we not? And that is how places like LA Fitness stay in business. They promise change. I learned yesterday from a friend that there are over 50 orange theories in the United States and exactly this many have closed since opening. So I went on their website to, to, to check it out. I know there's one in Grandview, and I see it packed all the time. Uh, here's what it says. It says, more results, more confidence, more life. Listen to these promises. More than a gym, because you shouldn't live to exercise. You should exercise to live. It doesn't have to be fitness. As I said, I have books on my shelf that promise exactly that kind of life. Change. 
Uh, I used to have a whole 30 cookbook on my shelf. Amen. Anybody else? Um, I had that cookbook and it promised profound life change. I have books on personality types on my bookshelf that promise deep and lasting and abiding change. In fact, Josie and I have a book on our shelf about the life changing magic of tidying up. That right there, okay? That right there is, is a promise. Like, if you have a drawer like that, then your life will be changed. Amen? I mean, that's, that's, if, it's so tempting. I love this from Heather Harvaleski. She writes this. She says, Condos, Marie Kondo is the one who wrote this book. She says, Condos' central underlying message is that most of the stuff we own is not only pointless and deeply unnecessary and horribly burdensome in every single way, but holds us back from growing into fully empowered, happy, satisfied people. Who doesn't want that? Amen? Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. And so Marie Kondo is just one of the many voices that gives us a practice. A practice. Almost a religious rite that will unleash an empowered happiness and satisfaction. And the idea is that this is how the world has always worked. In ancient Corinth, to go back to our text, in ancient Corinth, they had their own life-changing magic practices. I mean, they called it mystery religion. The deepest realities of life, beauty, truth, goodness... Being empowered, happy, and satisfied. These deep mysteries of life. Ultimate reality, right? Was a deep, deep mystery. And if you could just somehow access that ultimate reality through a practice or a rite or an initiation practice. If you could somehow tap into it, then you had life-changing magic at your hands. Your life could be transformed. And so in ancient Corinth, just like modern Columbus, everybody was obsessed, obsessed with changing their life through elaborate practices. I mean, the ancient equivalent of your new workout app or your yoga practice. Or even something like a Neil deGrasse Tyson book. These are all sort of promising a deeper understanding to how the world works, which will help us just get along in this world, even flourish. So the world of Corinth, as I said earlier, is very different from our world, but in many really important respects, nothing has changed at all. The human heart is made of the same material then as it is today. And the world is every bit as much broken today as it was then. And we are all desiring something like this. We all crave it. We all want it. And so it's no mistake that there will be offerings. Giving you the right practice. Giving you the right insight in order to get this. What is true? If I were to boil it down about every human being is that we are committed to changing our lives through what I would call some kind of practice. Change happens through 
a practice. And in walks Paul the Apostle, and he turns this upside down. He says to an entire culture committed to this, that change does not come from a practice. Change comes exactly from a person. Change comes exactly from a person. It's not possible with our own practices. And listen, helpful as they may be, exercise is important. There is nothing inherently wrong with trying to learn more about the world, life hacking your life. I, like all those things are great, but when they are for you the means of change, we have missed something, says Paul. Real change comes through a personal encounter with Jesus. The Lord Jesus, God in flesh. That is where real change exists. I mean, verse 2 tells us this. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And then he adds a little extra there. He says, and especially Jesus Christ on a cross. In fact, Paul references mystery religion in this passage in verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony, or another way to put this is the mystery of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. One translation calls it polished speeches and the latest philosophy. Paul is essentially saying, uh, I did not come to you with exactly what you expected from an itinerant preacher. What you would expect an itinerant preacher to do is to show up with the life-changing magic of fill in the blank. And then I would give you the latest philosophy with the loftiest of speech as to how you can have your best life now through whatever practice it is, whatever understanding there is that I can offer you. And he comes in knowing his audience perfectly and he says, I am not going to do that because... Change does not consist in a practice. It consists in Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ on a cross. Only Jesus can change you. That's the point. That's the point this morning. Only Jesus can change you. How does he change us? He mentions two things in this short text. The first thing, as I mentioned, is the cross. Paul says, I, I, I came simply talking about with simple speech, Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ on a cross. Now, why would he emphasize the cross of Jesus in Corinth? That is a question we all should be asking. Why does he say in him crucified? Well, earlier we know in verse 30 that he's not excluding the resurrected Jesus. As we know, Jesus was crucified and on the third day was risen. And in verse 30 of what we uh, of chapter 1, which we saw last week, it, Paul says, He is the source of your life. 
in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. And so we all have sort of benefits because of Jesus risen from the dead. We have right standing with God, righteousness. We have nearness with God, sanctification. We have rescue from God. That's our redemption. And it's all in Christ. But in this passage, Paul highlights the cross for two reasons. Number one, it's because the cross is the least likely change agent in this ancient city of Corinth. And Paul is pointing that out. Remember, the cross was the symbol, the byword for shame and loss in a winter culture. It was weakness and foolishness to that culture. There's a quote from the biblical scholar N.T. Wright, and he says, Imagine somebody at a fashionable dinner party going on in a loud voice about how he'd seen rats eating the body of a dead dog in the street. That's weird, right? That's awkward. That's awkward. That's awkward. Can we all admit that's weird and awkward, right? And everybody would sort of nod their head, I think, in that environment, and then afterwards say, that was awkward. That was weird. Why did he go on and on about that? That was weird, right? That was weird, right? Am I wrong? Was that weird? Yeah, that was weird. Everybody would just say, that's not okay. Well, that's the kind of impression that you would make by standing up in public, as Paul does, and talking about someone being crucified. It was just an ugly thing. It's gross. And in that culture, it was not something you just went on to talk about. And Paul's saying the only thing that can change you, friends, is the one thing that you would least expect Jesus on a cross. <laughs> but there's another reason why Paul highlights. Uh, there's another reason why Paul highlights Jesus on the cross. It's because without a crucified Jesus, we would be stuck in our old self, our sinful self. You see, without a crucified Jesus, the power of our sin would still reign and rule over us. Without the cross of Jesus, not just the power, but the penalty of our sin would still hang over us. And we would walk in shame and guilt every single moment of every single day. And we would have the penalty of our sin hanging over us. And we would have the power of sin ruling over us. But in Christ, especially his crucifixion, we know that that self has been killed with him. It's been crucified. That self, that sinning self, the power of sin and the, and the, and the sort of penalty for sin, Paul says, is us in Adam. And then he says in Galatians 2.20, he says, My old self, this Adam self, has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live now, but Christ who lives in me. See, the cross teaches you something about change. To change, we need to die. That's, what, that's how you change. Your sinful self cannot change unless it dies. To quote Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, if you want to live, if you want to live, if you want to live, you have to learn to die. We get that because we cannot change in our own power and in our own strength when we are in Adam, when we are literally a walking dead person. 
It's like trying to change, uh, trying to change your life without the cross on which your old self is crucified. Trying to change without that reality, it's like simply rearranging old furniture in your house and saying it's all new. And trust me, I, I, that's, that's just what I do all the time. That's what my wife and I do all the time. We just are like, we're feeling like the house is getting grubby. Let's rearrange it. And for like a few days, you're like, oh, our house looks brand new. It looks brand new. And then like, it just takes about a week before you're like, nothing's new about this house. <laughs> we're just fooling ourselves. There's nothing truly new in that arranging. There's nothing truly fresh in that rearranging. It's all just rearrangement of what's old and broken. And that's exactly how all of these practices are for change. If it's not rooted in the cross of Christ. Because only in the cross of Christ is there the possibility for death and then resurrection. New life. This is how Paul changed, if you think about it. Paul was Saul. Before he was Paul. He was a man who was in control of his life. And he had found a life changing practice. He wasn't tidying his drawers. But he was tidying his life. And he was persecuting these Christians out of zeal for God. And as he was riding on his horse, and I like to imagine this even, because to ride a horse you have to actually hold on to reins. And so Saul was living life very much as if he were in control, with a tight, white-knuckled grip on the reins of his life. And as he's riding on this horse, he has a personal encounter with the crucified and risen Lord that he had been persecuting. And he was knocked off his horse. I love this painting by Caravaggio. If, if, if you can't see it because it's a little bright. What you see at the bottom of this horse is a man who was in control. Lying on his back like a turtle. Upside down. Hands out. He was knocked down by Jesus. And it was at that moment in his life, the most vulnerable moment of his life, the moment in which he let go, or rather was forced to let go of his reins, where change happened, where he became Paul. (laughs) Which tells you something about change, doesn't it? To go from Saul to Paul, he had to be knocked down and encounter Jesus. And that's all Paul is saying to us this morning. The way to change is not by gripping your life tighter. The way to change is to actually get knocked down by Jesus. I know many of you are feeling weak and out of control right now in your life situation. You're feeling like all of your efforts to change are backfiring. Maybe like Paul... You are flat on your back with your hands out. And you're feeling powerless. Well, the Apostle Paul, from experience, would say to you this morning in this text. Jesus and him crucified. 
know nothing except that. The second change agent in Paul's message is the Holy Spirit. Paul actually says in verse 4 that his simple message of the cross unleashed the powerful spirit on and in people. He writes, And I was with you in fear and weakness and in fear, he says in in verse 3, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul is saying the simple message of Jesus on the cross unleashed true power on people. The power of the Holy Spirit, God Himself. So no real change happens apart from the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit who connects us to Jesus. When we saw earlier that we were crucified with Christ, how on earth does that happen? It defies logic. But we read the truth of the Scripture says that it's the Holy Spirit's job to connect us to the person and work of Jesus. So that in a very real but admittedly mysterious way, when Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, we were crucified with Him. So that when he was raised three days later, we are now raised with Jesus. And so we walk in a new life. Our old self has died. And we are now in Christ. And that's the Holy Spirit's work. And the Holy Spirit comes in power whenever we cry uncle. Whenever we say, okay, it's Jesus and him crucified. That's it. That's all I got. And when you are in that posture, like Paul before us, laying down saying, Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. Does the Holy Spirit come in power? I mean, it's the same Holy Spirit who created the world and is recreating the broken world that is now among us and in you. Recreating you into the image of Jesus. The truly perfect human being. And that's amazing. So real change, frankly, is a simple equation. Real change is the cross plus the spirit. Real change is the cross plus the spirit. And so what are you adding to that this morning? How are you making that equation more complex? I mean, even very good things, things like spiritual disciplines, they're not the change agent themselves. It's very easy for us to to sort of subtly get trapped into that thinking. That the way to change is actually the spiritual disciplines. No, the change agent is Jesus, especially Jesus crucified and the Holy Spirit. Practices at their best simply put us in a posture to remember that and to rest in that. We never graduate from this. We need to continually return to this. And when we stay simple, 
relying on the cross and the Spirit, Paul says in verse 5, our faith would rest in the power of God. That's for him, that's his main concern, is that a city like Corinth, who is very impressed with impressive things, would start with the cross and the Spirit and then advance to the cooler things, the more effective things. And they, I think like all of us, have a great radar for cool and impressive things. We all do. And Paul's main concern for them, and I think his concern for us, if he were here with us this morning, would be to say, no, I want your faith, your empty hands of faith, to not grab onto cool and new things. What I want your empty hands to grab onto is Jesus and Him crucified and the power of the Spirit in your life unleashed on you. So that it has nothing to do with human wisdom or human resolve. So that has everything to do with Jesus. That is the power of God. When I was in seminary in graduate school, more than 10 years ago, I was learning how to swim at the local YMCA. And I was learning how to swim, not with a teacher, but with YouTube. Okay? I mean, praise God for YouTube, right? I mean... That saved me a lot of money. But I would enter into the pool and I would thrash against the water. If there was one of those cool cameras that you have during the Olympics that sort of watches the swimmer go, and if there's one of me swimming, my body would sort of almost be like this, like almost like walking but not touching the floor against the water, thrashing against the water. And then one day I clicked on a YouTube video and this person said, you know what? Like, you may not realize it, but your body is buoyant. Remember when you were a kid and you, were, you could, like, float on the water? And they said, they said, that is just so true. And then they said something that changed my swimming practice forever. They said, don't fight the water. Swim downhill. Swim downhill. I know there's some triathletes training right now. Swim downhill. <laughs> Swim downhill. What's that mean? Don't fight the water. The water is your friend. Move through it. Let it help you. The same is true of our faith. Faith is resting in the buoyancy of God, really. It's resting in the power of God. Stop fighting and thrashing against God's power by trying to take control of your own lives. Stop fighting and thrashing against what God is doing in and among you. When you try to sort of wrest control of your life from God, you are fighting and thrashing. And you are exhausted like I was after one half lap. Paul says, Christ and Him crucified. Power of God. The Spirit demonstration of that power in your life happens when you lay hold of Jesus with your empty hands of faith in Him alone. So how do you change? We all desire change. The answer is, you don't do the changing. Amen? How do you change? The answer is, you don't do the changing. 
It's the cross of Jesus who gives you new life. Your old self has been crucified. It's the resurrection of Jesus who gives you new life. The power to walk in newness. It's the cross that that removes your shame and your guilt that you are sort of weighed down by right now. It's the cross that says you are completely clean. All of your sin has been dealt with. It's the cross that gives you the power. It's Jesus, crucified and risen, that is changing you by His Spirit. It's a completely countercultural move. That is a completely, almost scandalous thing. In fact, I'm just going to say it. Weakness, because this is a... This is Paul is asking all of us to, to like revel, not just accept, but revel in our weakness. Are you catching that? I mean, as much as we sort of as a culture right now are saying, yeah, yay for vulnerability and yay for failure. Like we're cool with that now. Aren't we? We're doing that. We're like, I think it's great. Like we were way into winning before as an American culture. Now we're into vulnerability and sort of failure. But have you noticed that the way that we even talk about vulnerability and failure is as a stepping stone to winning? Like, hey, CEO, like you're killing it. Don't be afraid of failure because after you fail, you're just going to kill it harder. Right? What Paul is doing is he's saying, just be weak, period, so that the power of God would rest on you. And as we saw this morning, the power of God works in ways that are not spotlight ways. Have you been knocked down by Jesus? That's the outside change source you need right now. You need sort of a gracious bump so that, he could, so that you could encounter him in his grace. And then I want us to notice just to close briefly here how this message of the cross not only changes us but ought to change the way in which we share it with others. Really what Paul is doing in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, as we read it, is simply saying, here was my method. Here's how I shared the gospel with you. And I think we, therefore, can learn a lot from him. We're not apostles like him, but we are called to share the hope that is within us. And so when you think about sharing the news of Jesus or the personal encounter with Jesus that you've had with your colleagues or your friends or your family, and you're just sort of like afraid and you're trembling and you're nervous and you're pitting out when you even just think about it, then you are, my friends, on good footing. You know why? That's exactly how Paul felt. He says it in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so Paul is saying, you don't have to be impressive when you share this hope. Of Jesus. In fact, being impressive might just be in Columbus in 2019 a hindrance to the gospel. Because your colleague and family member might fall in love with you and your church and your version or branding of Christianity more than Jesus himself and the power of the cross. We can talk about Jesus with a burden of being impressive. Or we can talk about Jesus as Paul was, flat on our backs, 
with their hands out. One is impressive and one is humble. Or I like to think of it as two different kinds of birds. There's a peacock and there's a mockingbird. I think of them in contrast. A peacock is all about flash. This is an impressive bird. There's a reason why Flannery O'Connor kept them on her farm. They are just impressive. It's all about showing off when we share the gospel. It's all about you. It's all peacock gospel sharing or even just having a posture of a peacock as a Christian in your workplace or at home. It's where it's it's about your words. It's about your presentation. It's about your tact. And the final analysis. And that is the Corinthian way, the lofty speech and wise way. But a mockingbird. I mean, that's a humble bird. Right? Am I wrong? Okay, that's a humble bird. What's a mockingbird do, though? A mockingbird doesn't have flash. It's small. It's unimpressive. It doesn't even have its own songs. It's called a mockingbird because, and I'm quoting, they mimic the sounds of birds and frogs. Did you know that? Around them, including shrieks, uh, blackbirds, orioles, killdeer, jays, hawks, and many others. They are a mimicking bird. That's just what they do. They don't have their own song. All that they do in their glory is mimic is repeat what they've seen and heard. And so we can strut around or we can simply repeat what we've seen and heard. We can give a simple message because we know the power is not in our message. It's in the cross. We are a community of mockingbirds, friends. who sing the message of Jesus. And this is so freeing if you let it be. Because it means your weakness and your struggles is not a hurdle to get over. It's not a hindrance to sharing your faith. In fact, your weakness and your struggles is exactly how your faith will go forward in power. Because your neighbor is going to say, man, Joe Hack's a mess. But he's deeply loved. I want that. Or we ask that the truth of the cross would penetrate deeply into the core of who we are so that we would not see weakness as a liability, but instead that we would see it as the exact place you want your people so that your power could be shown. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.